We are in Mark's gospel, and if you've been with us for the last handful of weeks, this is the last message in this section of Mark's gospel in this series of messages called The Struggle is Real. And if you've been following, you know that the basic idea here is that um, in Mark's gospel in particular, this, these center chapters are looking closely, kind of a close focused, you know, a telephoto lens on the relationship between Jesus and his disciples, you know, at a very important turning point, you might say, in their development and in his ministry. And in a sense, this is where they're getting to do two things, bit of a better understanding of who he is, right? We don't get to know Jesus, you know, uh, overnight, and what it means to follow him. And so we've been looking at that, thinking putting ourselves in the place of the disciples is what we should do. So we are at the last of these messages in this section of the book of Mark. We'll pick up the rest of the book um, in a couple weeks. In Mark chapter 10, so you have a copy of the Bible, or whether you access uh, uh, the paper copy or the electronic version, Mark chapter 10, and we will look at a passage, uh, verses 35 to 45, and a message titled, Servant Leadership. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Follow along as I read. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup uh, I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, the other disciples, the other apostles, they became indignant with Jesus and John. James, I'm sorry, James and John. Uh, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As I mentioned, this is the last message, at least in this section in the book of Mark. And we know, if, you, if we read just the few verses before, uh, verses 32 to 34, you realize that they finally reached Jerusalem. And in many ways, and I've said this over these many weeks, this, that Jesus' journey geographically from Galilee to Jerusalem represents in many ways. It's a, it's a, it's a pattern, it's a, it's a metaphor, it's a paradigm uh, for the, the journey of discipleship. Because in many ways, in Galilee where Jesus wasn't born, he's born in Bethlehem, but he lived in Galilee, all the disciples were from Galilee, and the, and the greater sympathies with Jesus' radical or, or more um, you know, uh, message to, to call people back to the true way of God, if I can say it that way, there was more sympathies up in Galilee. That's where the miracles happened, the feeding of the 4,000, the 5,000, the sealing of the storm, the walking on the water, all of that happened in Galilee. It was friendly territory, and it's where you would say those who more were open to receiving Jesus' message lived. 
But Jesus ultimately knew that his destiny was Jerusalem. His destiny was to, in many ways, confront the religious establishment. And his destiny was to die uh, uh, a horrible death in Jerusalem. And finally here, verse 32, we didn't read it, there in Jerusalem, which tells me this. Remember, this is about what we can learn, right? When you look at the disciples, put yourself in that place. These men, these greater disciples, including women, these followers, but these 12 in particular, have been with Jesus now for three years, approximately. For three years, they'd been listening to him, seeing him, hearing him, right? Think about that. You and I sit and we, 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 these, the word of God touches our hearts. It's alive. It's active. And that's why we're here this morning. But imagine if you actually were a part of the original um, communication, the original miracles, right? Would you not think that after three years of hanging around with Jesus, uh, you know, one-on-one or, or, you know, personally, that you'd understand who he was in a manner of speaking And what he was really all about, well, it's clear, this is the sobering reality, in this question, not just by anybody, but by the leaders. James and John are the leaders of this uh, group of disciples. They really didn't understand who he was. And I think it's supposed to get your attention. If you say, boy, that's a sobering thought. That's a sobering thought to think that they could have been with Jesus for three years and listened to him and saw him and do the miracles and been impacted by what he said, that when it came to this moment of truth in Jerusalem, after three years of bunking with him and and talking with him and taking very good notes on what he said, they really didn't know who he was, right? How about you? How about me? This famous passage, again, I didn't read the two verses just before it, but it's the third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus actually is very um, candid about his death. He's about to die. And he's, and it's, in fact, this one in particular, verse 34, if your Bible is open, he's, he's, it's the greatest of the three passages where he gives great detail, right? He says, not only am I going to die, but I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. They're going to spit in my face. They're going to flog me. That may mean not a lot to us, but it was a gruesome punishment that they would all know what he's talking about. And uh, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. Okay? They just got done saying that. Verse 35, where we picked up, right? The word then, the time word, James and John ask him this question, right? James and John ask him this question. It's clear that Jesus not only talks about what he is about to face, but as this passage ends, where I want to end here this morning, he says, not only do I want you to know what I'm about and what I'm going to head into, but I want you to be really clear, guys, because my time with you is almost up. I mean, we're in Jerusalem. My days are numbered, and I'm turning this organization over to you. It's important that you understand what I really expect of you. What does it really mean to be a follower? And that's how this passage ends. Instead, verse 43, whoever wants to become great among you, that's hinted at in John and James' question, must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. It seems... That even at the 11th hour of being a disciple of Jesus, an apostle of Jesus, these leaders didn't get it. What can we, modern disciples, learn from these, the first disciples? I would suggest to you the first thing is this. What you want 
is not what you need right, very often. What you want is not what you need. I want you to think about the context, right? Jesus just got done saying, at least if I take the Bible at face value, verse 34, he just got done saying the hardest thing that someone can say. It's like me saying to you, you know, Cheryl, you know, you're my friend. And I say, listen, I just got the worst diagnosis I could ever get. I've just been told I got a week to live and, you know, whatever. I mean, you think of it. The worst possible thing I could say to you. This is what Jesus just got done saying. They're going to spit in my face. They're going to punch me. They're going to crucify me. And then James and John, it's almost as if they don't hear it, right? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Think about that, right? When I, I mean, we want, not only can I ask you a question, instead of saying, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, we love you, and what can we do, and is this real? You know, we want you to do whatever we ask. Well, he's a genie. And if you, you're supposed to think about your own prayer life here, guys. I'm supposed to think about my own prayer life. Even when Jesus isn't going to, this is going through something so horrible. Do for me whatever I ask you to do. Now, when I first read that, or I read it many times over the course of this week, all I thought about was, first of all, it's a very selfish request, right? Right? I mean, you think that's very selfish. And that happens all the time. And when we're selfish, and we're selfish by nature, how selfishness is often manifest is you're not really listening to the person you're talking to. You're often talking to somebody, parent, student, coach, um, neighbor, friend, whatever it is, and you already have come to the conversation. You already know what you want to communicate. You already know what you want. And you're not even really listening. They might say something horrible. They might say something very, um, you know, benign and, uh, you know, superficial about the weather. The point is, you're not really, you're waiting for them to shut up so you can tell them what you want. Really? I mean, that's true. We do that, right? Or you do it. I know, I know you know. I know. <laughs> but let's face it, we do that. We do that. And the disciples do it here. But when I thought about it, I thought, the first thing that I thought about when I thought about prayer, because that's what this is in a way, Right? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. It was prayer, but they could actually pray with their eyes open. It, the only thing I could think of is it reminded me of children. I mean little children. Those of you who have little children, right? Because little children, you expect that of little children. They're not fully mature. They're not fully developed. The little children very often don't hear what's being said. They're only thinking, it's, a, it's, it's about being mature, it's about being young, what they actually need, and it doesn't matter what you say. You can say the president's been shot. You can say the world's coming to an end. You can say, you know, there's a meteor heading for the house. It's, what if, you know, this is what I need. And so I reached out to a, a friend of mine, a mom in church, and I was just asking her about her kids. And I said, I'd love to have a real prayer from a kid um, that makes me think about this passage. And she asked some friends of hers, and this is what she gave me. These are real prayers, right? Taylor Eisenhart. Dear God, thank you for this meal, and please let this, whatever this stuff is, taste good. Uh, I mean, I expect that from a... Seven-year-old, right? <laughs> Cam Shaughnessy. Dear Lord, thanks for this day, my friends and my dogs. Thanks for my cousins, but please make this baby stop crying. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Owen Tightsworth. Dear God, thank you for basketball and football and soccer. Thank you for TVs to watch them on. Thank you that they can play sports, and thank you for hockey as well. Amen. Oh, keep Daddy safe. <laughs> Kingsley Knight. Please help Dad to make a big sale tomorrow so we can go to Disney World. <laughs> and fly there in an airplane, not drive. Okay, my personal favorite since I, I think I once tried to fly to Buffalo. I understand his pain. Okay. Doesn't it seem that way? I mean, think about it. But it's so sobering. This is not, this is, these are adults, so to speak. This is James and John. James and John. They were just on the Mount of Transfiguration. For they were there at the Sermon on the Mount. They were there when he stilled the storm. They were there when he fed the 5,000, when he fed the 4,000. They, did they understand who he was? One would think, right? One would think. One of them wrote the Gospel of John. One of them wrote the book of James, right? I mean, not the book of James, that was his brother. But anyway, you get the idea. You get the idea. You know, this is the only other time, by the way, in the three times where Jesus mentions his, um, his uh, death, that he actually states why he's going to die. That's why it's such a famous verse. Probably the most famous verse in Mark's Gospel, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now watch this. And give his life a ransom for many. Now that's a word that's not used as much in our day. Um, the word ransom, we, we usually associate it with like kidnapping or something. But what the word means literally and means here is it's the price of release. That's the technical definition. It's the price of release. In what Jesus is talking about here, why did he have to die? He's saying this, that all people, whether you know it or not, and it's both Christian people and non-Christian people, all people are in bondage, okay? All people are in bondage. And it's not bondage like, you know, the state prison, but you are in bondage to sin. That's a Bible word. But the real big idea here is you are in bondage to, back to these prayers, selfishness. And Jesus Christ has come and he died so he could release you from prison so that you, the price of your release from the bondage of selfishness and sin was his life, right? And unless you allow Jesus to die for your sins, that is that you accept it, right? That's what I mean. Unless you allow him to die for your sins and ask and allow him to help you to be um, released from your self-centered desires, right? That's the power of sin. You will be a slave to the wrong things for the rest of your life. Listen, whether you're a Christian or not, James and John, do you think they were Christians? I think so. But they were not released from their self-centered desires and so much so that they were blind to what was happening before them. You, what you want is not what you need. You believe that? I got a letter from a couple people to a couple parents this week uh, sent me, maybe some of you got it, from the Brighton um, School District, sent by the superintendent of the Brighton schools to everyone in Brighton about, um, about the gender identity policy. 
that's just come out. Now, I'm assuming it's not unique to Brighton. I'm not picking on Brighton. And I understand these matters are, you know, politically charged, right? This idea of gender identity. But I'll tell you, this letter was seven pages long. Some of you may have got it. This letter had definitions in it. I, I, I needed to look some of them up, right? Seven, and it was not just sent to moms and dads. The letter said, dear students and staff. And this letter went all, started with kids in the sixth grade, okay? And what it said in this letter is, in essence, people as young as the sixth grade, okay? How old are you in the sixth grade, Dave? I don't remember. How old? 11? Okay, 12, whatever. Okay, sixth grade. They need to decide who they are, right? I mean, relative to gender identity, what they want to be called, what dress they want to wear, how they want to behave relative to their gender identity in the sixth grade. Now, I'm not here to make a big, huge speech on all the political ramifications and all of the complexities of this, but let me just say this. Whatever the student's background and situation are, I have a very hard time believing that that's going to help the students. I was very saddened when I thought about students having to deal with this. I was both saddened and grieved, saddened for the students, but very grieved by the adults, whoever they are, in or out of this administration, uh, the school system, that authored and sent this letter to kids as young as the sixth grade. Because why is that? Because, listen, when you are that young, right? Now, this is true for something as simple as what do you want for dinner? But when you are that young, very often, what you want is not what you need, right? I mean, how many of you are parents would ask your sixth grader every night, what do you want for dinner? And whatever you want, you can have it. You probably wouldn't do that. Your kid's teeth would fall out, you know? <laughs> Yet... We're going to kids as young as the sixth grade to ask them if they have the maturity and the wherewithal to decide what their gender is and what they want to be called. Okay? Where are the adults uh, in this story? And in a manner of speaking, let me change gears. I think it's what's going on here, right? Where are the adults? In a manner of speaking, James and John are not acting like adults, right? Jesus just got done saying some very serious stuff. And they say, Lord, teacher, I'm sure this is written the way it is to make a point, right? We want you to do for us whatever we ask, right? Whatever we, and look at Jesus, he's so gracious. What do you want me to do for you, right? They replied, translation, because it says when you get to glory, they're kind of skipping the cross part, right? When you get, when the election is over, because we have committed to you, we've been on your campaign staff, we've kind of taken Saturdays and Sundays off to work with you. When you reach, your, the election is over, we'd like top positions in your cabinet. That's basically what they're saying. And look what Jesus says here. I hope you have people like this in your life. He doesn't say, how dare you. He doesn't blast them with their um, immaturity. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Right? 
what you want is not what you need. And you don't know that. Do you have that kind of relationship with God, number one? Number two, if you're a parent, right? Our kids need those kind of parents. What you want is not what you need. And this is what we need as leaders, right? In every area of life, but certainly in the church. Do we have people who say, what you want is not what you need? Listen, do you have people in your life, right? A community, uh, 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 accountability, who know you well enough to look at you and say, Jack, what you want is not what you need, right? Speaking of our survey, right? Do you have those kind of people in your life, spiritually speaking? We need those kind of people in our lives. What you want is not what you need. First thing we learn from these ancient disciples. Second thing we learn is your idea of leadership, my idea of leadership, needs to be redefined, right? That's what we're getting at in these verses 42 to 44. Not only do we need to be released, you know, ransomed from our selfishness, but from our, 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 our addiction, our commitment to the value system of the world. Verse 42. Now when Jesus says these verses, basically paraphrases, this is how the world works. Right? You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, that's the nations, the, just, it's just another word for the nations, they lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Say, listen, this is how the world works. And when you read, when I first read this many times, it's almost as if you think Jesus is not, he's actually affirming something. It's almost like you read it and you shake it. That makes sense to me. As opposed to challenging something. He's actually challenging something. But it's almost as if he's saying, yeah, that's how it works. That's how the academy works. That's how the government works. That's how my dad and mom work. That's how I work. That's how the school system works. That's how the, the, the religious, that's how the church works. That's how it works. Those people are in authority. The word he uses, lord over others, right? If you look at the idea, concept to lord over, means to be domineering. It means, listen, what I say is what you do. I'm the boss, I have the authority, I'm here so that you can serve me, you can serve my purposes, you can maybe serve my ego, right? I'm the boss, what I says go, and I've earned the right to tell you what to do. And someone's like, yeah, that's how the world works. Jesus says, great, not so with you, right? Not so with you. But here's the danger. These guys, James and John, you and me, who Jesus was about to turn over this thing called the church, they assumed that to build his church, you do it the same way everything else in the world is built, right? I mean, they, want, they, they had the Jesus name and Jesus badge, and they, they said yes to accepting Jesus. But when it came to building his church, they figured the same, we build the church the same way that you build every other organization. Lord, when the election's over, I want to sit on your right and I want to sit on your left so that we can take your orders and we can move them down through the ranks of the organization. Right? In the survey that we, uh, one of the feedback that people gave, and this is a paraphrase, but someone said, you know, Rob, um, I lived in Penfield for many years before I came to Browncroft and when I, before I, she, I, one of the reasons I didn't come to Browncroft um, is the, this is a paraphrase, but the, the word on the street was that Browncroft was kind of a club for people that got their act together. 
and, you know, kind of an elitist kind of place. She didn't use the word elitist, but kind of a point. And they said, so that's, that, that was, I just want you to know that was the word on the street. Now, when I came here, my husband and I came here, we found it to be something different than that. Thank the Lord. Our experience has been very good, but I thought to myself, huh, that's what people may think for whatever set of reasons. We've been talking for the last year, certainly the last quarter of a year, you know, about the REACH initiative, renovating our facility, which I would say to you, boy, I think it needs to be renovated from top to bottom. I do believe that with all my heart. Let me say this. If we really want to see people in this community, beginning with extended family, friends, neighbors, this community, it has to begin with the renovation of ourselves, okay? We have to renovate ourselves because what is ultimately going to change people's lives, the people that you work with, the people that you live near, the people in this community, in this city, in this world, is because people around them, whether or not they're spouting scripture or not, they are demonstrating something different than what other people around them are different. Yes, it's the, the, the Gentiles, this is the way they work. It's all about the people in authority tell everyone under what, what, what they need to do. And what the world is looking for is somebody's little Christs, which is what Christian means. People are going to go into the world of the people around us and demonstrate a whole different kind of life. One that isn't seeking the top position, it's seeking the low position. It's not looking for people to wait on you, but it's looking for you to demonstrate a kind of love toward others. If we can get a hold of that, if we can redefine our understanding of leadership, let me tell you something, people will respond, right? Because this is what they're looking for. What you want is not what you need, okay? And you've got to get a hold of that. And that just, you, you don't get over that just because the day you become a Christian. James and John walked with Jesus for three years and they still didn't get it. What you want is not what you need, you need to be ransomed, not just from the penalty of your sin. You need to be ransomed from, your, from your, um, the framework of your thinking. The way God wants to bring about the gospel in the world, the way he wants to change lives is not, you know, you know IBM with a Jesus sticker on it. That's not how it's done. This is how it works in the world. However, not so with you instead. Now watch this. This is why discipleship is a choice. Inviting people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus is an invitation. Whoever wants to become great, you have to want it, must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. What you need is not what you want. Our idea of leadership and greatness needs to be redefined. Finally, what you really want, that's what Jesus is saying, is a life of service to others what you really want he's not just he's not just being clever to say i want to try to find a way to make you do what i want you to do he's trying to tell you who you really are if you really want to understand how god made you if you really want to experience life to the full john 10 right i came to give them life and life to the abundance if you really want to experience it he's saying what you really want right is a life of service to other, others. I would, I would challenge you to think this way. Anyone who, who, who has really made a difference in your life, think about it just for a minute. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's your um, uh, coach. Maybe it was a mentor. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was your, your uh, spouse. Maybe it was a good friend. Anyone who's made a real significant difference in your life. 
I would argue, has made a sacrifice in some way for you so that you would not take a hit at some moment in your life. So that you wouldn't take a hit as a kid, as a student, as a, as a soccer player, as a football player, as a husband. You wouldn't take it. They've stood up like you have. They've stood up and so that you wouldn't have to take a hit. They take it for you, right? That's what Jesus is saying. This is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. However, we often don't see it because of our pride and our egotistical way of thinking. It blinds us to the truth. So James and John are sitting here, man, it's the moment of truth. Jesus says, listen, I'm turning this thing over to you. And they say, hey, when you get into glory, can we sit on your right hand and sit on your left? Listen to this quote. We're almost done from a guy named Richard Hayes, a commentator, about this passage. Mark's vision of the moral life is profoundly ironic. There's another, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not what you think. Because God's manner of revelation, because God's manner of revelation is characterized by reversal and surprise, those who follow Jesus find themselves repeatedly failing to understand the will of God. Therefore, there can be no place for smugness or dogmatism. If our sensibilities are formed by this narrative, we will learn not to take ourselves too seriously. We will be more self-critical and receptive to unexpected manifestations of God's love and power. Right? That's what should be true for you and should be true for me. He said, listen, I know the way this is the way the world works. Right? Starts at the top and it cascades down. But not so with you. If you really want to follow me, if you really want to impact the world, you need to not seek the highest positions, you need to seek the lowest ones. You need to be willing to stand and take a hit for other people. Right? The bulletin, the question on the, the back of your bulletin, the application. In what new way is God calling you to serve others today? Jesus, in his life and in his death, modeled self-giving. And he's not, you and I don't have to go to a cross. He did, only one person hangs on a cross for the atonement of sin. But he's calling all of us to this way of life. It's a characterized by pouring yourself out for others. Maybe for you it's an aging parent. Maybe for you it's your child. Maybe for you it's your spouse for this season. Maybe for you it's a friend, it's a coach, it's a student. To pour yourself out for another. I came not to be served. Jesus didn't come to have people wait on him. He said, I came to give my life. And that's what I'm calling you to do. Right? What you want is not what you need. We need to redefine leadership. And what you really want, what I really want, is a life of service to others. And if we can get a hold of that, right, one relationship at a time, one person at a time, we'll really see God do something amazing. Because that's the essence of the Christian gospel. That's the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not having the right answer. That's not bad. It's a way of life, right? It's a way of life. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning.